0: Hi there, I'm Michelle Musi, the irreverent,
1: feisty, but irresistible author of Love Capades. And I'm Sally Kaplan, Michelle's partner in crime as her editor and clever co-host on this audio adventure. Welcome everyone to the
0: Love Capades podcast.
1: Welcome to episode seven of the Love Capades podcast. Last time, Michelle navigated grad school where she had an unfortunate relationship that ended sadly. But she graduated with a master's degree and then found a teaching job. During her playtime, while on the tennis court, she met the next truly significant man in her life. This upcoming episode explores the zigs and zags of that important love capade.
0: It was fun playing house with my guy and experiencing urban life again. For those who know the city by the bay, summers there are foggy and damp. I miss the sunshine of the peninsula, but I love being so close to Drake. Once school started again, I was back in my cozy studio apartment at Oak Creek. Not long after that, Drake hatched a plan to open his own tennis shop back on the peninsula in Menlo Park. Top Spin Tennis, he dubbed it. And it was good news for me because he rented a new place back in our mutual stomping grounds. I moved in with him again and did double duty as teacher and staffer for his tennis shop. I accompanied him on buying trips, displayed merchandise in the store windows, and womaned the cash register. For my efforts, I got free tennis gear and the satisfaction of helping my man. Drake knew that I was more than miserable in my teaching job, so he suggested I should try going into the real estate business. He'd known many realtors during his mortgage days. In fact, he still owned 10 or so rental properties, so he had a good sense of what was required to be a successful real estate agent. I took him up on the idea and began studying to get a license. By the spring of 1976, I had the License to steal, as my father called it, and I was ready to give it a go. One of the owners of a local real estate firm, Cornish and Carey, lived at Oak Creek. So one warm spring day, I went to his apartment for an interview. Mr. Carey was an older gentleman, and I recall him sitting in his recliner chair wearing plaid Bermuda shorts. I must have impressed him because he told the CEO, Jim Cornish, that he had to hire me. That summer I started what became an incredibly prosperous lifelong vocation. The first week I sold a house, the second week I sold another one, and by the end of two months I'd sold five properties. Mr. Cornish naturally thought I would simply continue, but for some reason I was nervous that commissions would not sustain me, so I went back for another year of teaching. It soon became clear that I couldn't successfully do both. So the following summer, I left the school district and began my full-time real estate career. One of my early home sales was actually to Drake himself. He bought a funky house on a beautiful acre in Portola Valley. And at the same time, I bought my own first property, a condo in Menlo Park. I could see that owning real estate was definitely a pathway to wealth in the Bay Area. So I borrowed 80% of the $47,000 from the bank and 20% from Drake. This was a smart business move, financing 100% of the total purchase price. Next, he moved to his new pad and I moved into mine, while our relationship continued. We'd been dating for years by this time, and I was 31, an age very into what was definitely considered old maid territory in those days. I might have considered cutting my losses at that point, but for the reasons stated earlier, I hung in there. I was much happier as a realtor than I had been as a teacher. My townhouse was cozy and convenient and growing in value by the minute. Finally, in 1977, Drake took me to Shreving Company, a well-known San Francisco jeweler, to select an engagement ring. I was overjoyed and couldn't stop admiring the sparkle on my left ring finger. By that fall, we had planned a small wedding to take place in Pebble Beach at my parents' country club. Invitations were sent out for a Saturday in October. As the day approached, I noticed Drake getting more and more nervous and withdrawn. Wedding jitters, I thought. Well, those jitters turned into terror for him, and just a few days before the nuptials were to take place, he bailed out. Bailed out! He said he just couldn't go through with the marriage. Imagine my devastation, my grief after all of that time. My parents were furious at him, of course, and reiterated how they thought he never had been the right man for me. Calls had to be made, reservations canceled, gifts returned. I'm not the only girl to be jilted pre-alter, but it's always a tortured situation. I was a wreck. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't work. In a word, I couldn't function. After investing so many of my prime dating years in that relationship, I hated myself for being such a fool. I'd seen the signs that this man had a commitment problem. But it's a pattern with me that I often give people too much benefit of the doubt. I should have known by then one cannot change people's spots. And Drake's spots were clearly not arranged for marriage. To make the miserable situation worse, the penny-pinching cad even had the gall to ask for the ring back. I should have kept it as bounty, but instead hurled it at him in disgust. (sighs) Believe it or not, not long after the shameful disengagement, he wanted to continue seeing me. Are you kidding? I told the delusional Drake in no uncertain terms that I would not date him again unless he sought psychiatric help to sort out his equivocation and fear of commitment. So he did. I consulted with a local respected psychiatrist about our relationship off and on through the years. So Drake made an appointment to see Dr. Ball. The first thing that happened was Ball gave him the typical personality test to determine his type. What came back was no surprise. Drake was not meant to be married at all, primarily because he couldn't handle the commitment required in a successful marriage. Of course, this made him mad, and he set out to prove the shrink wrong. One rather harrowing incident occurred in the timeframe between being jilted and waiting to hear Dr. Ball's analysis one of my realtor friends decided to introduce me to a man she was convinced was up to my standards. We went out a few times. I found him attractive in a sort of enigmatic way, but there was an air of danger about him. He finally revealed that he was in the CIA. At the time, I was clueless about what that job actually entailed. It sounded intriguing, if nothing else. After one of our dinner dates, we went back to my condo. Sitting on the floor in front of the fireplace, which had a fire crackling, I told him that I was probably getting back with my former fiance. This didn't sit well with the man. He accused me of using him to get back into the other relationship. I told him that was ridiculous, that I wasn't nearly that devious. So he left finally in a huff, and I went upstairs to bed. Shortly after that, I smelled smoke wafting upstairs. Memories of the girl on a burning roof from years before bombarded my mind. In a total panic, I called Drake rather than the fire department. He came right over and determined that the flue in the fireplace had somehow been closed, causing the smoke. If I didn't do it, who did? I've always thought that the CIA guy closed the flu out of spite. True or not, I'll never know, but it makes a good story. As for the Drake and Michelle saga, I had set a secret deadline of Valentine's Day 1978. If we weren't married by then, the entire proposition was finito, finished, over forever. Cupid's holiday was fast approaching, and I wondered round the clock what would happen. I even went over to Shreve & Company at their Stanford Shopping Center branch to inquire whether a certain Drake S. had recently purchased a diamond ring. The clerk showed me the courtesy of checking their records, but the answer came back, no, we have no such order on the books. Naturally, this dashed my hopes. Shortly, February 14th arrived with no telltale signs of a wedding. I went to work that day, but by mid-morning, I was so emotionally overwrought that I told the secretary I had to go home, with vapors, as they used to say. Soon after, so I'm told, Drake called the office asking for me. He was informed that I had gone home not feeling well. I took to my bed in a sad, desperate state, sure that I would need to pull the plug on my six-year roller coaster romance. Then the phone rang. It was Drake, of course, wanting to know what was wrong. I demurred, not wanting to discuss it on the telephone. Very shortly after that, he appeared at the front door with a small bouquet of flowers. Here we were at the pivotal moment. I explained about my secret self ultimatum to let him know what was happening. And voila, out of his pocket came the same engagement ring we'd chosen before, the one that Shreve had denied having on order. This was a Tuesday, so he promised that by that weekend, we would drive to Nevada to get married. Not the lovely wedding young girls dream of, but after. All the rigmarole. It was what I wanted, or thought I wanted. With much nervousness that week, I scurried around to figure out a get married get up and ready myself for the trip to Carson City. I envisioned one of those quickie wedding chapels I'd seen on TV, and that is exactly where we ended up. We paid $5 for the certificate and another $5 for the witness, a stranger who would sign the marriage document. The vows were boilerplate and uninspired, but we were finally man and wife. After the ceremony, we booked into a local motel and found a restaurant to have dinner. During the meal, I excused myself to go send a telegram to my long-suffering parents to tell them of our nuptials. My father's birthday was a few days hence and I thought it only fitting they should know the operator on the phone asked to which phone number I would charge the telegram. So you should know that I still have that very telegram. And I will post it on our Love Capade's Facebook page and our Love Capade's website. So you can take a look at it. After a moment's thought, I told her to use Drake's number rather than mine at the condo. You would think that was appropriate, right? Finally, we retired to our room, and here my heart was pulverized. Drake evidently was so conflicted about the marriage that he had no interest in making love. On our wedding night, I knew this was a very bad sign. Sex had been our salvation, and rather than celebrate our marriage with a whopping night of whoopee, there was nothing, not even affection. It brought to mind so many movies I'd watched where the wedding bed scene was a disaster for one reason or another. Here I was with my own sad scene to contemplate. anticlimax on steroids. The next day didn't improve. Rather than hang around and do a little sightseeing in the area, Drake wanted to get right home so he could open the tennis shop on Monday morning. Silence gripped the airwaves in the car on the ride back until my husband turned to me and asked the following question. Last night when you sent your parents the telegram, whose phone number did you use? How could he ask me that question? I knew his queer query was all about money. He wanted to know if I had spent mine or his. It had been a $2.20 telegram, for God's sakes. What possible difference should it have made now that we were married? In that moment, I wanted to scream at him, turn the car around, we are nullifying this marriage. But I didn't. I rationalized, again, that I'd come this far and had to give us a chance to work in spite of my worst fears already flaring. It appeared obvious that Drake was more concerned about preserving his stash of cash than caring about me. Upon arriving home, I grabbed my checkbook and wrote a check for the entire balance I owed Drake for the loan he'd made when I bought the townhouse. And I said, our account is even now. Let's not make money the reason our marriage will fail. Of course, I had hoped he would rip up the check and not expect his wife to repay him. But that isn't what happened. He kept the check and cashed it. A comment on motherhood. After two abortions, I was finally married with a chance of becoming a mother legitimately. However, there was no chance of that with Drake. If he couldn't feel comfortable with a commitment to a wife, imagine how afraid he was to have a child. He was a stickler for those trusty Trojans. Nearly a spontaneous screw, ever. No doubt, had there been a slip-up, he would have advocated for abortion number three. And I would have said, no way, Jose, to that one but it wasn't in the cosmic cards. We lived together in the house I'd sold him for a little over a year until I gave up and filed for divorce. During those months, there was so much stupid stuff about money that I'm almost embarrassed to recount it. Drake was a certifiable tightwad. Exhibit 1. He wouldn't allow me to put our dirty dishes in the dishwasher because he said it would cost too much in electricity. Was he for real? At least I had the backbone to tell him if that were the case, he'd have to do the dishes. Another sign which underscored his fear that I would get my hands on his overly hoarded funds was that he refused to permit us to have a joint account for household or other uses. But the most offensive money misstep had to do with something I wanted to buy with my own earnings. I fell in love with an oil painting at one of the galleries in Carmel while we were visiting my parents. It cost $600, which I didn't have at the time. So I purchased it on a time plan. Drake thought this was such a ridiculous extravagant expenditure that he fought me about hanging it on the wall in quote, our home. Beauty has always been very important to me, whether it be in my home decor, my wardrobe, my garden, or the greater world. To this day, I adore that painting. But when I look at it, I often recall the fights we had over its value. All of these Shekel shenanigans were emphatic proof of Dr. Ball's predictions. Remember, he had said that Drake couldn't handle commitment. Refusing to share revenues of any kind was simply a symptom of this personality flaw. So once I was on my own and flying solo again, I was thrilled to make my own decisions about how to spend my money. This was immensely important in restoring my equilibrium, my own independent identity, and no doubt one of the main reasons I didn't rush to remarry. As I look back at the entire chronicle, I had done a lot of rationalizing and sucking up and subduing my own nature to his in order to achieve the goal. In the end, I had chosen to marry my fantasy rather than the reality that clearly had peeked through the blinds all along. It's all so complicated to unpack, even now. I could have made so many other choices, but as my trusted therapist has said to me a million times, I made the best decisions I could at the time I made them. There was good fruit and bad in that relationship, so the task has been ever since to harvest what I learned about love through it all, and not to hold on to self-loathing or regret. What glares at me the most is that I didn't believe I deserved a cherishing kind of love. Ours was a tug-of-war in which I gave in far more than Drake did. I suppose this is a common practice, that the woman is the yielder, but it is decidedly not my personality. I was faking it, so in the end, when I did run away, I was finally able to blossom as my true self. I had surely given it more than the old college try. Another conclusion I drew at the time is that sexual attraction, while wonderful, is not enough to sustain a committed relationship. Sex can be a drug that blinds you from your highest truth. Other things are needed, such as shared values, common life goals, willingness to compromise, and mutual respect, to name a few. In a word, love, the kind in which your own well-being isn't more important than that of your beloved. One positive postscript to the saga is that long after my relationship with Drake was over, as unsatisfying as it turned out to be, I have always been grateful to him for steering me to the perfect profession. It has afforded me a marvelous life with money and time to continue traveling as had been my wish all along and having adventures, many of them, the romantic kind, the kind that have filled my life and the pages of this book.
1: Michelle, it's Sally here. That was, that was hard. That was painful. It was painful to listen to, but also very touching to me in a way, because you bearing that level of vulnerability and heartbreak and sadness truly made me, as a listener once again, reflect upon some of that in my own life. And one thing I just wanted to share with you is you're giving us a chance to reflect upon the mistakes we have made as younger people in our lives. And it's very generous of you to go that deep, to give us that chance. Oh, that's kind of you to say, Sally. But I do want to ask what that was like for you to, to read and to write, and I can only imagine revisit
0: well, you're spot on. It was hard to write it at the time I wrote it, you know, a year or so ago. It was very hard for me to read it and because I had to re-experience it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And good old Drake the Flake, you know, he <laughs> was, <laughs> well, he was many things. You know, he, was, he wasn't he was all bad because obviously I was uh, attracted to him. So there were a lot of things about him that were lovely. But he had some major personality flaws. And I, as I say quite emphatically, I sucked it up because I wanted to get married.
1: Yeah. So without taking you through pain too much more, are you okay if I ask a couple more questions to to bring to highlight some of this? Of course. Of course. Okay. So the very first part of the episode, I kind of was intrigued and I liked. You opening it with, it was fun for you to play house with your guy. And just go into that a little bit. You were in- enjoying being in a couple, no? Oh, yeah. I mean, again, I've, I think I've revealed
0: so far in, in the book that I was of two minds. You know, I was uh, an adventurous, independent girl, woman. And I also had that program to want to be in a family and to have a husband and children. So I was of two you know, I was split in half, let's say. And so hanging out with Drake up in San Francisco, you know, living with him, it was just fun. I got to experience that other part of me that I hadn't experienced yet.
1: Yeah, and kind of not worry about eating for a while and kind of enjoy being with someone, right? Yeah. Well, tell us what happened next, because that, that tells me a delightful side that you were having with him. But it sounds like soon after that, you saw a side of him that wasn't as delightful. So tell us a little bit about that.
0: All right. So after the two plus months in the city, I had to go back to teaching. So I went back to my studio apartment and I would commute to the city to see him. But then he decided kind of out of the blue to open his own tennis store back in Menlo Park. And he called it Topspin Tennis. So he moved back to Oak Creek actually got his own apartment and opened the store. So two things happened. One, I moved back in with him to his apartment at Oak Creek. And then I would help him night and day when I wasn't teaching in getting the shop set up, running the shop. And he of course, didn't pay me. <laughs> I was just doing it out of the goodness of my heart. And, you know, so that, that shows a not so great side of Drake, I think.
1: Well, there was a lot of back and forth in the read and in his story that we're seeing him as a full, three dimensional character—the good, the bad, and the ugly—and <laughs> <Yeah, that's> um, <laughs> right. a considerate side of him that you did tell us about was he got that you were miserable in your teaching job, so it was him that that suggested you go into real estate. Is that correct?
0: Yes, he suggested that because I was so happy in teaching that I would make a great real estate agent. And he knew that because he had been a mortgage broker. He owned many properties. He knew lots of realtors. So he figured out that I would make a good real estate agent. So he suggested it and I took him up on it. So that was one of the good things about Drake.
1: And tell us about your first experiences in real estate. Were you good at it? Remind us. (laughs) It was like a a duck taking to water. It was like so
0: natural for me. You know, here I was, very young to be a real estate agent. And the first week I sold a house to my one of my girlfriend's boyfriends. And I just, you know, I just sold it to him because I I made up light of malarkey. No, I wasn't a light of malarkey. It was, actually true. it was actually true. But anyway, I sold the house the first week. I sold the house the second week. And within a two-month period, I'd sold five houses. It was like, you know, it was like uh, amazing. And the boss, Mr. Cornish, was very impressed and assumed that I would just keep doing it. But instead, I... Didn't feel confident enough yet that commissions would sustain me. So I went back to teaching for a year.
1: Well, let me take you back for a quick second. Where'd you get that incredible sales energy? Tell us about that. Well, I was a natural
0: salesman like my father. You know he he and I are similar in personality, bigger than life, uh, <laughs> positive, charismatic, outgoing. He had been in sales in his career as well. And i I didn't have to read a book about how to be a salesperson. I got it from my father. And it was as natural as as anything I, I could be.
1: It was like a perfect fit. And I love that Drake actually was the one that saw that in you. I didn't quite understand why you felt so insecure and went back to teaching. You hated teaching.
0: Well, I hated teaching, but also, you know, being in commissions, you don't have a guaranteed income. And I was still young. And where it, I, I'd had great success, I wasn't totally confident that that would continue and that I would be able to pay my bills.
1: Right. Okay. I got it. So then you actually said that one of your early home sales was to (laughs) Drake. Remind us of that.
0: Okay. So here I have my real estate license. And, you know, we were shacking up living together in his apartment at Oak Creek. And then he decided, because he had quite a bit of wherewithal, he owned all these properties, that he wanted to buy his own home on the peninsula. So, of course, I got to be his real estate agent. And we found this really, really intriguing property in Portola Valley, and I was his agent, so I sold it to him. And at the same time, I realized, here was my first summer in the real estate business, that this was a way to get rich, and so I wanted my own
1: property. Now what I really love about that Michelle is here you are like swooning for this guy that you're hoping to marry he buys a house from you and then you buy your own place and you're actually making a business decision that kind of overrode what many women would do at that point which is to move in with their man at any cost you were smart well you
0: bring up an, again that interesting <laughs> di- that interesting dichotomy within me which is independent business woman you know on the cutting edge of women's liberation and the old-fashioned girl who wanted to be in a, with a family and a husband so again that that uh, big fissure down the middle of me i i was two parts and so buying the buying the townhouse was the business part
1: yeah and then soon after you 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 bring up what what truly, in that time period, I know, was considered the old man, old maid territory, where you were, what, 31? Yeah. You were 31, and in your read, I believe you said you could have considered cutting your losses at that point, but the possibility of becoming an old maid at that time, you really wanted very much to get married, and so, so talk a little bit about the, the steps that led you toward that first marriage. Well,
0: I'd been dating this guy for five years. And again, in the very beginning, I think I said he was getting out of a divorce. So his foot was on the brake. I was wanting to get married. So my foot was always on the accelerator. And there was that tug of war going on the whole time. Plus, he had this issue with commitment. So anyway, uh, but I just decided I'd invested so much time in the relationship. he he did turn me on, you know, I liked being a couple mm-hmm. and it was it was time for me to get married, so I just
1: hung in there. Mm-hmm. So the fairy tale was about to unfold until devastation, right? <laughs> a few days before the friggin wedding. Yeah. I, I can't I cannot wrap my head around how painful that must have been for you as a young woman. So we
0: finally had a date to get married down in Pebble Beach. And as the date approached, he got more and more squirrely. And then two days or three days before the wedding, he said, I can't do it. He frickin' bailed out. I was I was un- I was beyond devastated. I was crushed.
1: Yeah, I, I I hear you, Michelle. You do say you were not the only girl to be jilted pre-alter. That's absolutely true, but that doesn't take away how torturous that situation must have been.
0: Yeah, I mean it was one of the lowest points of my life. There's no doubt about that. I was, I was beyond
1: beyond (laughs) yeah then to make things worse he actually had the nerve to ask for your engagement ring back
0: oh god that was a scene so you know after it all he again because he was had issues with money i'm I'm sure he wanted to turn the ring back in so he asked me to give it back to him and i was deer in the headlights you know i should i should have said fuck you buster (laughs) I'm keeping it. But instead, I was so upset and angry, I threw it in his face. <laughs> oh my God.
1: And then I think the next, the very next beat you shared in the episode was he wanted to continue seeing you. Oh, I mean, the nerve, the nerve. And I love, yeah. I love what you did. I love you said, listen, not unless you see a psychiatrist, mess, Mr. Mr., and I love that you gave him that really an ultimatum wasn't it
0: yeah basically yeah. so he he was motivated enough for some strange reason to do it he he pursued it he went and had this you know consultations with this doctor ball whom I'd already seen and it came back from doctor ball that he should never be married well duh <laughs> you know that was obvious but did i follow that so anyway that piece of news irritated him to the max and he just set out to prove the psychiatrist wrong right
1: oh my god now there was a little insert that i'm remembering in this read in this episode that was about the cia guy that you dated for a a very short time yeah yeah, oh my god i cannot believe you went through a near smoky fiery incident yet again tell it (laughs) remind us remind us how the story went down
0: so one of my real estate friends fixed me up with this guy, you know, a handsome attractive guy. And we dated a few times and after one of the dates we went back to my townhouse and I had a fire crackling in the fireplace and we're sitting on the floor and and I I confessed to him that I'm probably going to go back to Drake. Well, this pissed him off. He felt manipulated. He felt I'd used him. And then he finally left in a big huff, and I went upstairs to bed. And then all of a sudden, I smell smoke, which uh, took me instantly back to Switzerland and the burning roof incident. Anyway, so rather than calling the fire department, which I should have done, I called Drake, who lived many miles away, and he scurried over and determined that the, the flu had been closed. And of course, I've always assumed... It was a CIA guy, bastard,
1: bastard, right. bastard, <laughs> bastard. Wow, that's really an intense. That you you were up against some real threatening stuff. I mean, it's funny, it's funny in a way, but it's also terrifying. Jeez, little. Yeah,
0: as, as I wonder often how I've survived all these things.
1: Yeah, you're definitely like you know what do they say? A cat with nine lives. You're a you're a, a lover with a hundred prospects. <laughs> Anyway, it seems okay, so back to Drake for a minute. He sees a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist actually tells him, "Listen, dude, you don't have what's the necessary ingredients for commitment." However, he decided I'm going to prove the psychiatrist wrong. So what did he do? He sucks you back in?
0: Yeah, he it was, well, he he went into his charming charismatic mode. I mean, he was motivated to prove the psychiatrist wrong and to get me back. So good good drake showed up and he wooed me again and silly michelle i
1: fell for it (laughs) Mm -hmm. well silly michelle you fell for it is one way to look at it the other way is you were a very normal 31 year old young woman with correct fantasies of marriage to your man and that was Oh, maybe a chance of getting fulfilled again. So so, so remind us what you did. What's a secret deadline of Valentine's Day? A secret meaning you didn't share it with anyone but yourself?
0: Okay, so we started dating again, and I said, all right, Michelle, if you aren't married by Valentine's Day, that is the absolute end of this relationship. So Valentine's Day came. I went to the office. And by mid-morning, I was so traumatized that I went home, as I say with vapors, which is a very old-fashioned word. It just means you're about ready to faint. So I went home, got in bed. Drake called the office and found out I had gone home ill. So he calls and wants to know what's what's wrong and I wouldn't tell him on the phone. So he appeared at the front door with this little bouquet of flowers and of course when I think back on it it was a little bouquet of flowers because he was such a tightwad. He could
1: have brought a little more substantial bouquet. It's of like flowers. small bouquet of flowers hand in right, right. <laughs> while right. you're on the fainting couch, right? exactly.
0: So anyway, he comes in and then I revealed to him that I had done this ultimatum and set this date of Valentine's Day, that if we weren't married, that that was the end. And at that moment, he pulls out of his pocket the engagement ring. And we decide that we're going to go up to Nevada and get married that weekend.
1: And what really hit me about that part, Michelle, was... We know you love beauty. We know you love luxury and wonderful celebration. And here he's going to take you to what? A little chapel in the middle of nowhere to get married? Yeah.
0: In Carson City. So, so unelegant. So not me. But again, I i did it because I'd gone through that whole six-year period. And I, you know, that was that was the
1: option that I was sure. given. Sure. And it turned sour pretty soon. I mean, that phone call with the telegram, oh my friggin' God, what a, what a disastrous sign of the tightwad he truly was came out.
0: I will never get over
1: that. Never. It was just,
0: it was so emblematic of what was really going on with him, what he was truly like. Here we'd gotten married and he couldn't stand the fact that I might have spent 2 dollars on a telegram and charged it to his phone. And then as a result of that fear that it brought up for him, there was no lovemaking during, you know, our first night together. And on the way home, when he asked that question, whose phone number did you charge the telegram to? I literally wanted to turn around, go back and undo it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Looking back, I I wonder if you wonder sometimes why didn't you?
0: <laughs> well, I as I say in the book, it's I I'd gone this far, I guess I had to give it a chance to work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that hit me about that part was here you were, man and wife, maybe not for long, but you were man and wife. And it wasn't just he didn't want to spend money on you, but he really had set up this his versus yours rather than an hours feeling which isn't marriage supposed to be about shared
0: stuff it's supposed yeah it's supposed to be but he didn't have that concept
1: yeah yeah and then what you did was really quite amazing to me remind us what you did with the check that you wrote him
0: after the telegram question in the car when we got it, it made me realize that that he was having real issues about money and being afraid that I was going to glom onto his funds, (laughs) his funds. funds. So when we got back to the house, I literally said, here is the money I owe you for the loan you made when I bought my townhouse. Here's the balance of what I owe you, which was $7,000. And I said, so let's start with a clean slate. You know, money should not be an issue here and not ruin our marriage. And I, when I did it, it was quite a gesture. I fully expected he would tear the check up. Hello. And guess what? He didn't. He didn't. He cashed it.
1: Painful. Really, really painful.
0: The son of a bitch.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry to laugh. I mean, I'm laughing. It's painful. Then the whole child issue comes up here you are young woman in your 30s you're married everyone around you I'm sure who's married at that age is having children or dreaming of having children and what do you find out about
0: him well it wasn't a total surprise that he didn't want to have children but you know how it is many people many men say that I don't want kids they get married and they have a a house full of kids. So I always held out, being the optimist that I am, I always held out that he would change his mind. Well, he wasn't changing his mind. So after two painful abortions, I'm legitimately married and he won't even consider having children.
1: Yeah. And then back to the tight wadness of this character, his true colors really showing throughout. That was really something when you wanted to buy a painting that you absolutely fell in love with and how he viewed it. Mm.
0: Oh, he he made such a production out of my buying that painting. You know, it was $600, which at the time was a lot of money. But it was something that I wanted and have always adored ever since I acquired it. But he made it miserable. He didn't want me to hang in the house. He made fun of my irresponsibility with money. He, he, He just demeaned me. And finally, I convinced him that we could hang it in the bedroom. So, the times that we would change the sheets together and there was the painting, he would start up all over again, making fun of me, telling me how stupid I was to have bought that painting. So, to this day, it hangs on my wall. I love it. It's beautiful. It's a, a painting by an artist named Lindbergh. And I have. You know, two feelings about it. I love it, but then I remember all of that stuff around my marriage with Drake. So,
1: your love of beauty, your love of beauty is what sticks out for me, but what stuck out for him was an extravagance. He judged you that way, but it didn't sound that way to me at all. You were spending your own friggin' money on it, for heaven's sake. I know. I know. Yeah. So, another thing that just really stood out to me is as you, looked back within the episode you shared with us, looking back, you see that you had done a lot of rationalizing to make this thing work. And sucking up, and how you, I believe, you said you subdued your own true nature, really, in order to achieve the goal. So in the end, isn't it true that you had chosen your fantasy over the reality? And I think you even said that it it was peeking through the blinds all along. Tell us a little bit more about that.
0: Well, I think I've pretty much told the story in the book. I wanted to get married. And even though I I had very strong suspicions about what it might be like to be married to Drake, I pursued it. And again, I should say at this point, you know, I mentioned earlier in, in in the story that an early therapist told me that you can choose your man but only from those who choose you. And I have to say that I was always the one who was more uh, ardent about our relationship. So I, I chose him. And it, in the end, the therapist was right. It didn't work out. So that was one thing that I was aware of. But, but anyway, I went through with it. So there are two wonderful things that I got out of being married to Drake. And one of them was this fabulous real estate career, which has given me a fantastic life. I wouldn't have had that career had it not been for Drake. The second thing is that he solved my old maid problem. And I've often said to people, well, I married him. I got a real estate career and I was not an old maid.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But you also said in the read, which I want to underscore because it's such a it's an admirable part of your personality. You recognize looking back that you were faking it with him. You were faking it because you didn't blend in a lot of ways. So in the end, when you chose to run away, you were finally able to blossom into your true beautiful self. What a celebration. Yeah.
0: It was it was like a liberation, Sally. I was liberated finally. I'd given it my all. It hadn't worked. I did get some wonderful things out of it residually. But once I was on my own, I was free to fly.
1: And I think another thing that's important is a conclusion you drew from another lesson you learned from this experience that you talked about in this episode, which is that you guys really did have a hot sexual attraction to one another, but you recognize in the end that's not enough to sustain a committed relationship. So what else is needed? And you define it. I think you should read it to us again, what you define in a way, what true love is.
0: So I say sex can be a drug that blinds you from your highest truth. Other things are needed, such as shared values, common life goals, willingness to compromise, and mutual respect, to name a few. In a word, love. The kind in which your own well-being is not more important than that of your beloved.
1: Touche. I mean, what a what a beautiful thing to behold. Well, as I've said all along,
0: there is something to learn in every love relationship, whether it's fabulous or horrible and everything in between there is something to learn and so I've spent a life learning these love lessons and frankly I'm still learning them
1: so just as a wrap up to this beautiful deep emotional segment Michelle I'm reminded of your incredible ability to look for the good in any situation including this painful chapter of your life. And it's allowed you and us, honestly, to keep coming back for more, might I say. Hmm. Thank you for
0: saying that. I do think my nature is one of optimism and hope. I see the glass half full. Another thing I've often said about myself is I'm like a pop-up doll. You can punch me down to the floor, And I pop back up. (laughs) So I think we can close on that note.
1: I do too. Looking forward to more, Michelle.
0: Thank you, Sally. Thank you for listening to the Love Capades podcast. If you'd like to submit questions, please send them to michelle at lovecapades.com. And that's spelled M-I-C-H-E-L-E at L-O-V-E-C-A-P-A-D-E-S dot com. Also check out our Facebook page and website, both called Love Capades, for fun facts and groovy visual stuff. I am the author, Michelle Musi, and my co-host is Sally Kaplan. The Love Capades podcast is skillfully and playfully produced by StudioPod Media. You can find them at studiopodsf.com.